0: This is the Monash University Perioperative Medicine podcast series. I'm Jamie Smart and today I'm joined by Kerry McLaughlin. Kerry is a consultant anaesthetist and pain specialist at the Alfred Hospital and at the Caulfield Chronic Pain Service. And we're going to be talking about a very popular topic at the moment and that's the opioid epidemic. Kerry, thank you for your time.
1: Hi, Jamie. Thank you for inviting me.
0: The idea of an opioid epidemic is is uh, attracting a lot of mainstream press and has done so over the last few months. Um, In fact, in a recent article in The Guardian, the opioid problem in America was described as the deadliest drug epidemic in US history. It stated that opioid overdoses have become the leading cause of death in Americans under 50 and that the root of the crisis is the over-prescription of opioid painkillers. In the UK, the number of patients Uh, visiting hospitals with overdose, overdosing on opioid painkillers has doubled in the past decade. Are we seeing a similar picture here in Victoria?
1: Well, Jamie, yet again last year, there were more people that died in Victoria from accidental prescription drug overdose than were actually killed on the roads. Of those deaths, about 50% have been attributed to prescription opioids. The people dying from opioid overdose don't meet those usual stereotypes either. The Australian Bureau of Statistics show you that the Victorian prescription opioid deaths are predominantly accidental. There are two age spikes, with the over-50s being increasingly represented in the last few years. And deaths in rural areas have overtaken those in metropolitan Melbourne. Polypharmacy is a major contributing factor, with the majority of deaths having multiple opioids and sedatives found in the toxicology. These people that are dying are everyday Australians with legitimate pain conditions, but misguided pharmaceutical management. Concern over this actually led Alfred and Caulfield Pain Services to develop a pain education day aimed at local opioid prescribers. This ran last December, and we had some really positive feedback from the people who came.
0: So is the main problem that these patients are getting hold of illicit drugs, or is it from the misuse of prescription opioids?
1: Well, the figures suggest the bigger problems actually with prescription drugs. For example, the Ambulance Victoria data from 2014-15 report that they had more call-outs for prescription drug-related incidents than any incident related to illicit drugs. Deaths from both illicit and prescription opioids are increasing, but it's currently the overall number of deaths from prescription opioids is higher. What's interesting about the figures, though, is that they really don't explain how the illicit population ended up on their opioids in the first place. Very few people start with heroin, but they end up there through exposure to other medications. And people quite wrongly have the impression that prescription medications are safer. The high-profile deaths that you've mentioned of recent years related to prescription drugs is just the tip of the iceberg. And really, it's doing very little to convince the public that real harm is caused by these medications. Credit really should be given to the family of Tom Petty, who was an American rock musician. He died last year, and the family released a statement regarding his death from prescription medications. They said, look, it was an accidental overdose of a cocktail of drugs, including fentanyl and oxycodone, to treat the pain of his fractured hip, amongst other issues. And they said that they hoped his death led to a broader understanding of the opioid crisis. And that many people who overdose begin with a legitimate injury and simply do not understand the potency and deadly nature of these medications.
0: So if part of the problem is that people are starting on opioids for legitimate reasons and that then they're just continuing this, you know, how is this happening? What are the factors that have been driving this?
1: Look, effectively, it's poor understanding about how to use opioids, Doctors have been driven by a wish to help their patients. Uh, We had lots of reassurance in the 90s that opioids were going to reduce pain and suffering and contribute to a better quality of life for chronic pain patients. That's now been disproved in the literature, but the public perception is pretty slow to catch up. Patients often present to me asking for an increase in their opioid medication. Despite clear evidence that their response has been poor, um, their pain and their function is often worse. And in some cases, they've actually been exposed to considerable harm. Very few patients I've found when they've had their opioids started for their pain had sufficient information given to them to explain that medication is only going to be used for a short time to determine its effect, um, and if no improvement was seen, then the medication was going to be weaned and ceased. Really rarely were ceilings placed on either the duration or the dose of the opioids, and the patient received little information, if any, about the potential risks of being on opioid medication long term. Really the result of that is that opioids get escalated even though they've been proved ineffective for the pain and they get left at high doses because the patient and the doctor both fear being left with nothing to treat the pain.
0: So opioids really are getting a bad rap in the press, Um, but surely they still have a a significant role in the management of acute pain?
1: Well for now, yes. Um, Opioids are still excellent analgesics for acute pain. I wouldn't be surprised if they use wanes in the future not just um, because we've got so much evidence about the harm they cause through the development of dependence and addiction, but their effect on the endogenous opioid system and immunosuppressive effects. um, Evidence is now mounting that these are counterproductive too. We're getting better at minimising our opioid use through the use of regional analgesia, antineuropathic agents and clear opioid weaning strategies. So we should continue with that.
0: So what we've been talking about so far really revolves around the use of OxyContin and to a certain degree fentanyl. Um, the government has decided to introduce a ban on codeine. So they've recently introduced a ban on over-the-counter products containing codeine. Is this going to help alleviate this problem or will it simply um, lead to over-prescribing of codeine containing products or other problems?
1: I think the first thing to note really is that codeine is a very poor analgesic. It's been off the hospital pain team formulary for the last decade. The number needed to treat of prescription-strength codeine, which is the 60 milligrams, is 12, which means you have to treat 12 people for only one of them to experience a 50% reduction in their pain. So lower doses that are available over the counter actually do little more than cause side effects. This recent legislation has given us an ideal opportunity to educate the public and other health professionals about the limitations and harm of continuing to use codeine-containing preparations and to emphasise a move to non-opioid-based analgesics and non-pharmacological strategies for pain management. The GPs need to arm themselves with a clear strategy to educate their patients. For the chronic pain users, they have a great opportunity to reduce the potential risks and increase self-efficacy. An effective strategy would be to review the patient's pain management plan and recommend inclusion of non-pharmacological strategies like pacing, addressing postural components and sleep hygiene, and introducing structured exercise programs. This would reduce the passive pain management strategies like medication and emphasize more active self-management. And this may include referral to a chronic pain clinic. They've also have the opportunity to screen the patients who are at risk of dependence and take measures to reduce their reliance and associated risk. Patients that are actually exhibiting addictive behaviours need identification so they can be counselled and supported by drug and alcohol services. For more information on this, the TGA website would be an excellent resource. It's of significance though that one in three scheduled deaths actually involve codeine. Um, multiple opioids are a major contributor to the polypharmacy-related deaths. And the Faculty of Pain Medicine have a free downloadable opioid calculator. It's got an easily readable traffic light system that allows you to calculate the oral morphine equivalents of all the commonly used opioids. And you can identify the patients that are receiving high doses. For example, most people are surprised to find out that a 25-microgram fentanyl patch is equivalent to 75 milligrams of oral morphine a day. Eight Panadine Fort tablets are equivalent to 32 milligrams of oral morphine a day. Adding those together, over 100 milligrams, it's classified as high use, and it's easy to see how the dose can add up. The risk of harm escalates with the dose, which is why dose reduction and emphasis on more active pain management strategies are becoming the focus. The opioid calculator also contains the Faculty of Pain Medicine recommendations for the use of opioid analgesics who have chronic non-cancer pain, and I reckon this should be read by anyone who's performing assessments where opioids are being considered.
0: Okay, so as perioperative physicians, we have a responsibility for ensuring that our patients receive adequate post-operative pain control. And opioids remain on most of our pain schedules. If you look at all of the ERAS protocols, for example, um, the majority of patients are prescribed uh, long-acting opioids as part of that. So we prescribe opioids regularly, but I wonder if we do enough to um, limit that. Do you think we are part of the problem?
1: In short, yes. Look, opioids are prescribed very appropriately for acute pain and it's absolutely right that they're on the ERAS protocols. But what we see um, as part of the pain service is that doses are weaned very slowly or inadequately during the hospital stay and patients are being discharged on much higher doses of opioids than is necessary.
0: And do you think that's perhaps that the more senior staff aren't taking responsibility and it's left to the junior staff to write the discharge summary whereas the more senior staff are the ones that are commencing patients on these opioids?
1: In part, and certainly the junior members of the team have the least experience with the actual surgery itself and the implications of that surgery in a particular population. Um, We look really regularly, though, at the medications we send people out on. And we found when we did an audit that we were actually sending out as much endone as we were paracetamol with our day surgery patients. So we took action on this, and we actually developed a tool to assist the junior doctors to determine what analgesia was appropriate for each patient. They based that on their pain score and the analgesia they used in hospital. And the pharmacy team here also screen each prescription, and they can help reduce the amount of opioid being dispensed if it's in excess of the guidelines. It's no one person's job. I think it needs to be a team approach. What you've got to remember is that most of the community has leftover strong opioids sat in their drug cupboards for just-in-case use, like a toothache or period pain. Their use isn't sanctioned, and the medication might not even be their own. Um, This is contributing to the ever-increasing population of opioid-tolerant patients that we're seeing, and there's good evidence now that supports opioid-induced hyperalgesia, where pain is increased due to escalating doses of opioids, There's more recent evidence that exposure to opioids can actually alter your body's ability to regulate its own analgesic system, which is the endogenous opioids called endorphins. What we've been seeing for years is that patients who are on high doses of opioids for chronic pain have a reduction in the effectiveness of opioids when they're needed for acute brain presentations. Additional opioids just don't work for their pain, and we've been forced to develop our expertise. In the perioperative world in the use of non-opioid analgesics to manage their perioperative pain successfully. What we've also been noticing though has been those patients who've been previous users or abusers in the past have similar reduced responses to the opioid medications. What this means is that taking opioids aberrantly now may well influence how well they work for you when you really need them.
0: So Kerry, what do you think we can do better? How can we help our patients, particularly I guess in hospital medicine and in the perioperative setting, how can we help them to avoid becoming so reliant on opioid medications that future problems develop?
1: Well, as perioperative physicians, we need to be modelling opioid reduction behaviour by reducing the opioid use in hospital, by implementing weaning regimes during the inpatient stay, and by reducing the volume of opioids that are being dispensed. We need to continue educating the patients and the GPs about the use of opioids for short-term control of acute pain only. And to summarise, a greater emphasise on non-opioid analgesics, promotion of non-pharmacological pain management strategies and timely referral to chronic pain clinics would be a great first step.
0: Fantastic. Thank you very much, Kerry.
1: Thanks, Jamie.